So how is everyone doing this morning? Good. Yeah, good, excellent, good. How's everyone's March Madness bracket doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mine got blown up on, what, the second game of the tournament? Yeah, thanks Kentucky, thanks for that. This, this, this is not the first year I've had my national uh, Final Four, you know, national championship game team lose on the first day. So that, that was fun, but there you go. So, this week we are continuing our series on the seven saying to the cross, Jesus' last seven words to people around him. And thus far, we have talked about forgiveness. Two weeks ago, Lauren talked about forgiveness and how Jesus talked about, you know, Father, forgive them for, for they know not what they do, the importance of forgiveness, the importance of praying for forgiveness, all that. And then... Last week, we talked about Jesus's putting forgiveness into action. And for Jesus, that was salvation. Talked about the, the, uh, the criminal on, on, on either side of him, how one of them mocked him, one of them talked to him and asked to be remembered, and so Jesus talks to him and gives him salvation. We talked about how, kind of funnily enough, this criminal, you could argue, is the first Christian, the first person to receive that salvation. And so today, we're going to kind of follow this trend a little bit. We're going to talk about how Jesus talks about our personal cares, our cares of our life and our cares of community. Now, I want to hit on something before we kind of dive into the meat of things here. This is the first week we're going to be jumping to a different gospel, and that brings up a point of not one single gospel has all seven of these sayings in them. Like, so... The order like, that we're presenting in them, that's just the traditional church order of them. So they might not have been the exact order they were said in. There might have been other things said too. And so each gospel is giving a different account of this event, of Jesus' crucifixion. I know sometimes that can throw people when they, you know, because they want that one narrative that has all seven saints in it in the exact order of everything happened. We just don't have that. Each gospel is highlighting a different theme, a different element, a different something of this event. So... I just want to touch on that in case there's any confusion about, well, why, why this order? Where, where is this coming from? This is just her tradition of this particular order. So that's all it is. Now, let's dive into our passage. Our passage this week is from John 19, and I'll start reading here in verse 25. Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene stood near the cross. We're going to pause right there. So up until this point we have really only been introduced to people who are happy that Jesus is being crucified. People who mocked him, people who arranged for this to happen. Those have really been the only characters we've seen thus far in the crucifixion story. Now we get the other side. We get people who love Jesus and who are now feeling sorrow, sadness. You know, we're getting that emotional side of this discussion, of this event. So we have a couple different people here. First one, we have Jesus' mom, Mary. We'll get back to her in a second, but so we have Mary here. The second one, we have Jesus' mother and his mother's sister. So Jesus' aunt is here. Now, we, there's some, again, kind of speculation because in some other Gospels, they give this person a name, and so there is some that think this lady's name is Salome, which is the mother of James and John. So, is G are James and John Jesus's cousins? We don't know. But regardless whether they are or not, whether so, we know this, this lady is Jesus's aunt. 
This next person, Mary Cleopas, we really don't know a ton about. As with everyone, especially in the New Testament, there is a whole massive tradition around who this person may or may not have been, but we really don't know. She's a Mary here. That, that's all we know for sure about her. And then the last person, Mary Magdalene. Again, massive amounts of tradition have, have grown up around her. Um, all we really know about her is what we have in the biblical text. She was a follower of Jesus from one of the earliest stages. Um, she was the person who cleans Jesus' feet with her hair and the oil, all that kind of stuff. So that's really all we know about Mary Magdalene. So we have these four people here, Jesus' mom, aunt, Mary Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. So we have two people related to Jesus, one person who was a longtime follower, and third, the third Mary, or the, the Mary, the wife of Cleophas, we really know not a lot about. But presumably, if she's here, she cares about Jesus. So we have four people very close to Jesus. And let's jump back to Mary here for a second. Because... Like I said, thus far, this has just been a lot of people taking joy in Jesus' death. And this is really our first glimpse at Mary. How was she, what is she going through? Again, we don't, the text doesn't really give us a lot. We have to fill in gaps for ourselves. We just have to put ourselves in that position about how Mary might be feeling. But one thing I think is fascinating is that Mary seemingly knew this was coming. If we jump back to the beginning of the story, all the way back, different gospel, Luke 2, very beginning of Jesus' life. Jesus is born. One of the traditions is you go to the temple to be dedicated pretty soon after you're born. So during the story, Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple, and they have this interaction with a man named Simon. This comes from Luke 2. Simon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this boy is assigned to be the cause of the falling and rising of many in Israel, to be a sign that generates opposition, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. And so the sword will pierce your innermost being too. This is that sword. So from the first week of Jesus' life, people were telling Mary, this is coming. This is coming. And now it's here. He's watching the sword, you know, the, the spear that will pierce Jesus aside is also kind of piercing her. This is kind of the framework we're in. This is what Jesus is seeing when he says this. All right, yes. When Jesus saw that his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. So the first point that I think is interesting about this verse is I think this verse gives us a visual proximity of the layout of what's happening. Jesus is being crucified. By this point, he's probably been up there several hours. His voice isn't going to be very loud. When you are crucified, what actually kills you is your own body weight. You suffocate the weight of your own body collapses your lungs. So he can't have a very loud voice. So if he's saying this, assuming they're going to hear him, they have to be very, very close. They can't be more than a few feet away, right? Like if he has very little voice talking to them. So they are right there. I don't know, to me, whenever I see depictions of it, you often see them off in the distance until it's over. 
and then they come approach. But this potentially leads me to think that they're right next to him. Now, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who is this? Do you know who this is? You want to have a guess? It's John. This is John's weird way of referring to himself. It is something you see a decent amount in ancient writing. In some genres, they didn't want to refer to themselves as I. They didn't want to write in the first person. So this is John's way of referring to himself in the third person. Um, I've been rewatching Seinfeld, and there's a great episode where this guy refers to himself in the third person. The Jimmy's doing this. The Jimmy's doing this. This is kind of John's way of doing that. Now, by saying he's the one Jesus loved, that's a whole other, like, you're getting, get off your high horse there, John. But point be aside, this is John. This is John's way of referring to himself. Now, why does Je- this, the way Jesus refers to his mom there always felt weird to me. Woman, here is your son. What, what is Jesus doing here? This feels weird, right? Like, Leo, how would it go if you just started referring to your mom as woman? I feel, I feel like that's not going to go well. <laughs> but, all right, let's, let's give some context to here. This isn't a negative term. This isn't Jesus being disrespectful. Um, in fact, it, it kind of, I fell down this rabbit hole. It's interesting. Jesus never refers to Mary as mom. Whenever he is addressing her or talking about her, he says woman, not mom, mother, anything like that. Um, now, from a theological standpoint, people have spun this off to kind of show and, and a reminder to indicate that Mary wasn't an elevated status, that Mary, that Jesus was still Mary's savior as well. So kind of there's that element to it. Okay. Um, but what I think is, the way I like to look at this, or I think is a cool way to look at it, is Jesus' definition of family. So this is Matthew 12. Uh, Jesus is having a discussion. You know, he's, he's teaching, there's a crowd around him, and someone in the crowd tells him, hey, your mom and your brothers are here. They have a discussion about, well, what, what is mother and brother? Who are my, my, my siblings? Who are my parents? That kind of stuff. And in the end, Jesus says, whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, they're my brother, they're my sister, they're my mother. Now, again, not a slam on these individual people, and I'm sure they had to have a discussion afterwards because that, that sounds really bad, but what he's doing is highlighting the importance of church family. Not church at that point, but, you know, what will we'll become church family. Highlighting the importance of the adopted family of God highlighting that as the family that really, really matters. Becoming part of this family, become, coming into the family where God is your parent, that's the family Jesus points to. And so I think that is personally how I kind of read why he doesn't refer to Mary as mother, just woman. He's like highlighting that family of God aspect, highlighting that this is how I define family. We are all part of the family of God. We're brothers, sisters, parents in this larger family. Does that kind of make sense? 
but maybe ease that, <laughs> that line a little bit. Uh, last, last part of this here, here is your son. Um, I've heard some people say that this refers, is Jesus referring to himself? And from context, from a nerdy Greek standpoint, the here is re- obviously re- is referring back to the disciple whom Jesus loved, John. So it's here is your son, it's Jesus indicating John to Mary. It's not Jesus saying, here is your son, look at me, it's, it's John. And we'll get into that right now. Verse 27, then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. So John takes Mary in. I think it's interesting um, for me, like knowing this verse from, from when I was little, you know, kind of up, growing, growing up, I had like a weird understanding of this verse. I thought it was, you know, you know, woman, here is your son, here is your mother. It's not Mary getting another kid to take care of. It's reversed. It's John taking care of Mary, not Mary taking care of John. When I was little, you know, like I always thought, well, cool, you, you, your parents take care of you, right? But that, that's not what's happening here. It's John taking Mary in. Now, why? First century Rome. Women don't have a ton of rights. Um, you really can't own much property, and especially if you're a widow, which seemingly Mary is, because Joseph is present in the, the birth story and is present for one story where Jesus is young. After that, Joseph isn't mentioned again. So the assumption is Joseph died at some point before Jesus' ministry started. So Mary, as a widow, and presumably a poor widow, because we have a lot of indications that they were very poor. And one of them is, you know, kind of going back to that scene we read earlier where they're dedicating Jesus to the temple. The Old Testament and the laws, it gives a list of acceptable animals that can be given as a sacrifice. You know, saying, if you can afford it, do this. If you can't, do this. If you can't, then this one, then this one, then this one. Mary and Joseph do the bottom of one, meaning they are the absolute poorest you can get. So, widowed, poor, female, and in this context, Jewish, in a very Roman, heavy, oppressed time period. Mary has kind of everything working against her to be alone. And so Jesus is trying to make sure she has a protector, someone who is legally bound to protect her, to take care of her. Now, this is an interesting question because Jesus has brothers. We know four of their names. Why does Jesus not assume the brothers are going to take care of Mary? We have no idea. No answers are given. Does Jesus, yeah, yeah, no, we, we don't know. Does Jesus just assume my brothers are slackers and I can't trust them? Or we have no idea. Um, some people have pointed out that at this point, his brothers did not believe he was the Messiah. So does that play into it? But they do believe he is the Messiah here coming up shortly at Pentecost. So it's not that far down the road that they do see Jesus as Messiah. We really have no idea why Jesus didn't trust his brothers, why Jesus chose John to do it. And that's that's one of those frustrating things, because I would really want to know, because that is seemingly a massive question. Why? But we don't know. All we know is that Jesus chose John, one of his best friends, you know, because when, when you talk about Jesus and the disciples, you have the 12, 
And then there's always that smaller group that goes off and does things, Peter, James, and John. So John is always in that group because John is one of Jesus' you know, three best friends, maybe his cousin, we don't know. That might give a little more credence to the take care of this because it's a family member then. I don't know, but minimum, one of his three best friends, he says, take care of my mom. So Jesus ensures that one of his best friends is going to take care of his mom. There's two levels to this I think it's interesting. First one, that base financial level we talked about. Jesus is ensuring that his mom is not going to be homeless and, what's more, is not going to be reliant on the temple system to support her. Because someone who was homeless, who did need help, you got it from the temple system. The very temple system that just killed her son. The very temple system that is causing all of this. They're not going to do anything for her, right? But just that relationship, that's, she can't rely on that, and they would not take care of her, presumably. So he's trying to take care of her from a financial standpoint. But I think there's another level to it, because, you know, money fixes a lot of things. Jesus could have, Jesus was God, Jesus could have been like, Mom, there's a fat stack of money under the bed now. I'm God, it's there, you're fine. But he didn't. The second side to it. There's a companionship side. Jesus made sure his mom would not be alone. Again, why the brothers? Who knows? But Jesus made sure Mary was not going to be alone, that she had someone to care for her. And now, this is going to be a little kind of tangent into church tradition and early church history. So let's take this part with a grain of salt, but I think it was interesting, so I wanted to talk about it here. Church tradition holds that John was the youngest of the disciples. If you look at old Renaissance paintings especially, you'll see 11, 12 bearded dudes and one person that is, you know, fresh baby-faced. That's John. Um, like the Da Vinci Code pointed like, that's Mary Magdalene. No, that, that was John. Because the idea was he, was, he wasn't even young enough to grow a beard yet. He was a little baby. So that, so, John is the youngest of the disciples according to church tradition. Now, early church history. We have two early church fathers. Um, Polycarp, who was the bishop of a city, Smyrna, and then Ignatius of Antioch. These are two of the very earliest church fathers. Um, they did a lot of writing. We know a lot about them historically. Both of them claim that John was their teacher. Now, from a when they lived, where they lived, that is plausible. It is entirely plausible just from a, or it's not out of the realm of possibility that the time period they lived and where they were located, a 40, 50, 60 year old John could have been their teacher. Going off of that, both of them, you know, they, uh, Ignatius in his massive work against heresies tells stories about John. He says, oh, my teacher John, the disciple did this and this, told me this and stuff. So there's some interesting stuff in there. Again, not biblical text, kind of historic text, so who knows how much of it. But kind of cool. But both of them say that John lived to an old age and died of a natural death. They speak of John being the longest lived of the 12 disciples. Meaning, if we take all that, 
Was Jesus ensuring that his mom would have someone for her entire life? Because a lot of the other 12 disciples died pretty quickly after this. Some of their ministries weren't very long. They died within years of this. Is it possible Jesus, that's why John was chosen? So that Mary would have someone for her entire life. The longest lived of the 12 disciples. Again, not biblical text. I just want to be clear, that's not in the biblical text. That is church history. I just fell down that hole and thought it was kind of cool and so wanted to share it. So what does this all mean for us today? I think we can pull two things out of this. First one, Jesus cares for both our eternal souls, we talked about last week with salvation, but also our current earthly lives. Our current lives, situations, problems are also important to Jesus. I think sometimes we forget that and we kind of focus on like, oh, this, this world's terrible, but this isn't my home, heaven's my home. Yes, that's true. But Jesus also cares for what we have here. We're, we're here for hopefully quite a while. Hopefully we have nice long lives here. And Jesus cares for those too, so we should as well. I mean, think about it. In Jesus' dying moments, he is actually doing the physical act that will get us our eternal salvation, right? This is the act that kicks off so we can have eternal salvation. While he is doing this, he makes sure his mom's earthly needs are met. Both are important to Jesus. I mean, think about Jesus' first miracle. At the wedding, Jesus and his mom are at the wedding, the hosts run out of wine. What does Jesus do? Who remembers? Who remembers? Water into wine, right? Now, I've read kind of commentary that try to, I, I personally think, exaggerate this experience. They say like, oh no, if, if the wedding party had, had run out of wine, they could have been arrested, they could have done all this. I think that's exaggerating it. I think it just would have been massively embarrassing. As it would be today, right? If you're, if you're hosting an event and you run out of food or drink or something, that's embarrassing. So I would argue Jesus' first miracle is preventing someone from being embarrassed in front of their friends and family. Jesus cares for our lives here, for our problems, for our current situations, for the things that we think might be small, like getting embarrassed, Jesus cares about. So if we want to reflect Christ, we need to both care for people's earthly lives, for eternal souls, right? That's important. We can't minimize that. But we also have to care for their current situation, for their current problems, for what is happening to people right now. We have to care about people's forever and today. We have to do both. We can't do one without the other. Second, I think this saying in this act of Jesus highlights the importance of community. Jesus understood the importance of relationships. Jesus ensured that Mary wouldn't be alone, that his mother would not be lonely, would have someone there with her. We, as a species, we don't really do good alone, right? I mean, what was one of the biggest concerns 
worries, issues with COVID, with being separated, is being lonely. And rightfully so, like that is a huge part. We do not do well apart from community. Think back to creation. We have Adam. Adam's around what, like three verses? And God's like, nope, we, he cannot be alone. We need to give Adam a partner. People should not be alone. So Genesis 2, this starts right away. People need other people. People need community. What's the, one of the first things Jesus does in his ministry? He gathers disciples. He gathers some homies around him to go on this journey with him. He doesn't, does Jesus need disciples? No, he's Jesus. He's God. But he's also human. And to recognize the importance of this community. Before Jesus goes and teaches to hundreds of people and does all these great things, he gathers a few people around him he can trust, a community to go on this journey with him. That's an interesting, I've read a number of studies this week talking about the importance of community and looking at the relationship between strong social relationships and physical health. Uh, one study I read, I it was interesting, um, they looked at a retirement community. It was a 10-year period, they studied this group, ending in 2010. And they categorized people in terms of strong social relationships. They had five, you know, five was the strongest, four, three, two, one was the weakest. And what they did is they looked at the lifespans of people. Now they accounted for life expectancy and all that kind of stuff. And what they found was that people on the higher ends, fives and fours, had a 50% greater survival rate compared to what their life expectancy was given when, when moved in than people on the bottom end of that scale. That was just one study. There was an interesting note that I saw that a number of physicians are starting to look at relationships, usually healthy, strong social relationships as what they're called predictors of, mor of morality, not morality, mortality. <laughs> Maybe morality too. Um, so they're putting it alongside things like smoking, excessive drinking, obesity, high cholesterol. They're putting weak social environments, weak social structures around a person in the same category as things that we can measurably detract from a life expectancy. To me, that's amazing that being lonely can be thought of in the same realm as excessive smoking, excessive drinking, those kind of things that we know have negative effects on our health. Loneliness is being starting to be thought of as categorized as just as important as those things to our health. So we need to strive to be in a community, right? I think all of this indicates we need people around us we need people we love and that love us to support us and go on this journey together. But I think we also need to work on creating a community not only for us, but a community where other people feel welcome. A community for others. I think when we kind of read this text, it's so easy for us to assume we're Mary. That we are called to, well, yeah, we need a community around us, absolutely. Sometimes we might be John. Sometimes we might be called to be the person that builds a community and brings someone else in. 
we often hear a lot of, well, I, well, I don't need new friends. I, I have my friend group. My friend group's awesome. I'm good. You might be good, and that's awesome. But you might be being called to be the friend of someone else. Someone else might not be awesome. And you might be being the person being called to bring them into the group. And you'll probably find that it'll help you and it'll enrich you as well. I feel like so often we're like, I don't need any friends. I'm good. I got my group. Maybe someone needs you to be their friend. So we need to work on building communities for us that enrich us, that help us, but also communities that are welcoming to others. Build communities that are ones of, of, of invitation, ones that are open, that people feel wel welcomed, warm, comforted, safe to join. So there's kind of the two takeaways from this. God cares for our individual lives currently, right now. All those small problems we think that are all oh, these are too small, God doesn't care about them. Yes, God does. Thing two, one of the ways God has given us to help our lives right now is through community. It's one, it's one of the best ways we can help our current situations to be involved in a community, to just really invest in a group of people that can go on this crazy journey together. Think that's something we can do? Like that? Huh? I like it. All right, join me as we pray.